You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2 to 16. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our afflictions, I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grieve, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jane. Well, good evening, everybody. It's great to be with you. You might notice that I've got a prop. Uh, that was for our kids' talk this morning. I've always wanted a heart cushion, and someone made this one for me because, look, I'm impressed by small things. My sense of humour is not very developed. So I love puns. So I love the idea of, like, playing around with a heart cushion. You know, you can wear it on your sleeve, your heart on your sleeve. You can have a heart attack. You can have a heart ache. You know, you need to comfort your heart or something like that. Or sometimes you can have a heavy heart. You have to be careful there. And if you drop it, you might break it. You have a heart break. Really, this, or also you can have a hearty breakfast. You might end up with your heart in your mouth. This is what we're here for. This is the quality that we get here at City on a Hill West. But I, I wanted this heart because 
Today's passage is all about heart. We see at the start of this passage that Paul says, make room in your hearts for us. And then he says, you are in our hearts. He's opened his heart to them. This passage is all about the heart of church life. As we've seen, Paul's relationship with the Corinthians was a complicated one. He'd planted the church. He was the one who brought the gospel to Corinth in the first place. He'd planted the church over 18 months and he'd sought to disciple them ever since then. But there'd been a number of challenges along the way. You see, the church of Corinth had absorbed the the culture of the city of Corinth. Uh, Corinth was a place that prized intellect and ambition and glamour and hedonism, and the church reflected that. There was immorality, immorality in the church. There was vanity. There was boasting. There was division. There was rivalries all over the place. And worst of all, the church wasn't really doing anything about it. So Paul had to step in. He He tried to visit them a number of times and he also wrote four letters. We have two of them. Uh, The second of those letters called 1 Corinthians, I know that's confusing, but the the second of those letters uh, was sent through his friend Timothy and he seeks to address some of these issues as we read through it. But we also found out that uh, the church didn't respond well to that letter. And so Paul had decided to make a quick emergency visit to try and fix up the problems But unfortunately, this didn't go well either. In fact, it was a very painful visit, he describes it in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. And it appears that there are a number of people who had questioned his leadership and stood up against him. And then the rest of the church hadn't uh, hadn't stuck up for Paul. They had just kind of left him there to be uh, abused by other people. And there were, worst of all, some people were actually murmuring behind Paul's back and suggesting that they, they couldn't trust him. They cast aspersions on his behaviour and his motivations. You see, Paul had made a decision not to take any money from the Corinthians. He was entitled to this. He says elsewhere that those who proclaim the gospel should get a living by the gospel. That it was appropriate for him to receive money, but he'd chosen not to take that. He didn't want to be a burden on them at all. He didn't want to put an obstacle in the way of them receiving the gospel. And so he hadn't taken any money from them. However, at the same time, he'd started to raise money for the church of Jerusalem that were really struggling. We're going to hear about that next week. Uh, And so he'd asked the Corinthians, could you give me some money so that I can give it to these people in Jerusalem? But even this had started to be uh, misinterpreted. Some people are saying, look, you say that you're raising money for the church in Jerusalem, but are you maybe just taking that for yourself? You're just pocketing it for yourself which is a pretty extraordinary accusation. They're basically accusing Paul of fraud, saying something against his character. And this deeply grieved Paul. We see in verse 2, we have wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. He's defending himself. But not only is he hurt, he's actually concerned because that incident highlighted the issues in the church itself. I mean, there's the sins that they're committing, But now there's also the problem of how they're responding to his confrontation. See, Paul is God's appointed leader for this church. In chapter 1, he says he's an apostle by the will of God. He says in chapter 10 that he has this authority that God has given him. And so if they reject his authority, they're actually rejecting God's authority. So Paul, seeing all of these problems, but he's thinking, how do I deal with this? Do Do I make another visit? Well, the first one didn't work very well, so he decides to write another letter. Now, we don't have a copy of this letter, but it's referred to as the severe letter or the letter of tears because Paul found it incredibly hard to write. 
He didn't enjoy confronting people. And he says in chapter 2, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. He knew that this letter was a tough letter for them to read. And so even when he sent it, he's, he almost regretted it. He says here in verse 8, I, 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 I regretted sending it as soon as I did it. I don't know if you've ever sent an email and you think, oh, I don't know if I should have done that. Or in the old days where you'd post a letter and you just sort of drop it into the post box and, and you think, oh, if only I hadn't, if only I could take that back. That's sort of how Paul is feeling because he's, he's worrying that they won't respond to it well. And he's finding the waiting agonising. So he sent this letter through another of his friends, a guy called Titus, and then he'd arrange with Titus that they would meet up at a place called Troas and then they'd find out how everything had gone. And then Paul gets to Troas and Titus isn't there. And so he's really worrying about it. He's not at rest, he says in chapter 2. And then they go off to Macedonia where he hopes to meet with him there. But again, Titus isn't there. So verse 5, he says, once more, we're not at rest. You imagine him pacing around and worrying and wondering and heading down to the docks every morning to see if the ship had arrived with Titus and almost dreading him coming because what if it's bad news? But eventually Titus does come and he has good news. Much of the church has seen the error of their ways and they're sorry for the hurt that they've caused Paul. There's still issues. We'll talk about them a lot in chapter 10 to 13. But on the whole, things are improving. And so Paul rejoices. In this whole thing, as I was reading this, I was really struck by the emotional ride of this, the emotional intensity of this passage and all of the things that Paul's experiencing. This is the heart of church life. He begins with this plea, make room in your hearts for us, and he assures them that they are in his heart. So really what I want us to see today is the heart of church life. First of all, the pastor's heart, then the heartfelt response of the Corinthians when they say sorry, which leads ultimately to full hearts of all of God's people together. First of all, let's think about the pastor's heart. We've been studying 2 Corinthians for a couple of months now and I've just loved it. And I'm learning so much, not just from what Paul says, but how he says it, how he goes about his ministry, how he, he leads as a pastor. And the thing that most impresses me is the way he gives himself to the people that he serves. You are in our hearts to die together and to live together. He's, he's chosen to attach himself to the Corinthians, spiritually and emotionally. And in doing so, he's made himself very vulnerable. You see, when you attach yourself to someone like this, you can find joy in their spiritual health, but it also means that you're going to find grief and difficulty when they're going badly. And so in 2 Corinthians 11, he speaks about the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? He, he feels weak when they are struggling because he's attached himself to them. He rides the roller coaster with them up and down and around and around. It's, he lives the experience with them. And we see that here in this passage. This is a difficult life, but he willing, willingly gives himself to it. Verse uh, Chapter 12, he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. He gives his heart to it because ultimately this is heart work. He's seeking to, to shepherd and care for their hearts. That's his work. 
And that means sometimes that he needs to confront their sin. That's the main issue in this passage, and it really shows his courage. You see, it's never enjoyable confronting sin. You don't want to upset the other person. You worry that they'll react badly, that they'll resent you for what you've said. And so anytime I have to uh, confront someone, I, I tend to avoid it. I hope it just kind of sorts itself out without me having to say anything. But that doesn't really work. If you love the people that you're pastoring, then sometimes you have to step in there. You have to speak into the problems. You have to risk the relationship to save that relationship. That's what a pastor is called to do. The word pastor means shepherd. And you think about shepherds in the Bible, they're protecting the flock. That's the work that God gives to leaders in the church. So Paul is courageous and I admire the way he is willing to confront sin. As R. Kent Hughes says, he's willing to walk towards the mess. But that doesn't mean that he enjoyed it. See, some people do enjoy this kind of conflict. I mean, Gordon Ramsay, he loves making idiot sandwiches. But I don't think that's how we should be as God's leaders. In fact, I don't think it's very helpful. William Barclay suggests that the most effective rebuke is the one which is obviously dragged out of a man and which he only gives because he can do no other. And that's what Paul was like. He agonises over this. He writes, not to cause you pain, he says, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. He wants them to know his heart. He's grieved that he is causing them grief. But still he does it because he knows that he has to. He knows that they need him to do this. John Calvin likens Paul to a parent, a father rebuking his son. A father, he says, is grieved by his severity if at any time he has to chastise his son, but he approves of it nevertheless because he sees it's for his son's good. It's significant that uh, Calvin likens Paul to a father because that's actually how Paul speaks of his ministry as well. In 1 Corinthians 4, he speaks of the Corinthians as his beloved children. And then when he's writing his letter, first letter to the Thessalonians, he says, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Then a few verses later, you know how like a father with his children we exhorted you, each one of you. So, so he sees his ministry as that of a parent. This, his job is not just a job, it's a vocation and, and the people that he's ministering to aren't just a, a congregation, they aren't just parishioners, they're family and he sees himself as a spiritual parent looking after them and like a parent he loves them, he cares for them, he, he wants the best for them and he guides and directs them towards that end. My wife says that becoming a parent is, is like choosing to have your heart live outside your body. Like, like you, your children are there and, and you're invested in them and you're worrying for them and you're living your life through them. You're riding the roller coaster of their emotions. It's hard sometimes. Your heart is exposed and vulnerable out there. That's what Paul was like. You are in our hearts to die together and to live together. And so the pastor's heart is the part of, is the heart of a parent. Now, of course, we need to be a little bit careful here because this can also be abused. One of the saddest, most evil things is spiritual abuse when a, a Christian leader 
controls or manipulates the people under their care. It may be, for instance, that they're incredibly demanding, expecting far too much of the people who are in their ministry and then heaping guilt on them when they start to buckle under the pressure. Uh, I had a friend who was an intern at a large church in, in Melbourne. She was working full-time, I think, at another job, and, but she was also expected to be doing stuff pretty much every night of the week and then all weekend for the church, and bumping in at 4.30 a.m. and travelling all across Melbourne. It was exhausting. And this was all to kind of prove yourself that you were ready to progress to the next stage of leadership. Uh, many of the people she was work, uh, an intern with just got so discouraged, they got exhausted and burnt out. Many of them left the church. Some of them left the faith altogether. So disillusioned were they by the demands that had been placed on them. And then uh, another form of spiritual abuse can be when people try to exert a spiritual control in the lives of the people that they lead. I had some friends who were part of a church in Melbourne, mate, Melbourne's got some great churches, uh, part of a church where the elders had the final say on basically everything. They would choose what kind of job you had or who, who you dated, even if you who you married and even what medications that you might take. They had to have the final say. You had to get approval before pretty much anything. And as this kind of thing happens, the pastor starts to exert control over the conscience of the people in their church. They start to define right and wrong for them. And then if anyone pushes back on that, they turn against them. They make them feel guilty. They take away opportunities for them to do ministry. They might shame them. They might isolate them. They might even question the reality of their faith. And often these kinds of abuses go unnoticed or even worse, they're accepted because everything else seems to be going okay. See, perhaps the church is actually flourishing. Perhaps there's lots of people coming. And so if you turn against the bully, you're seen as the problem yourself. Like, how can you go against this? Can't you see that God's blessing this? God's at work. How can you be opposed to what's happening here? Some of you may have listened to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which tracks the abusive behaviour of Mark Driscoll. I don't like necessarily being so specific about this, but I think it's probably important in this case because we were actually quite closely connected to Driscoll 10 years ago. When we were starting out in ministry, he was the big thing. He was a great, vibrant preacher. He had a big impact on a whole generation of my peers. In fact, he was actually very generous to us personally here at City on a Hill. Uh, I got to visit his church in Seattle. He offered us coaching. At one stage, they even invited us to be a campus of Mars Hill. We were invited to be one of their churches. So he was very kind to us. But behind the scenes, he was often manipulative and controlling. He would yell at people, he would demean them, he would flaunt his authority. And one of the things he'd always say was he had this motto, you've got to let your critics be your coaches. If, if someone's criticising you, listen to that, take it on board. But the irony was, as you listen to this podcast, that's just something he never did. If anyone turned against him, he would destroy them, essentially. One of the most poignant moments for me in the whole podcast, I think, was when one of the staff members said that uh, they have this amazing service and there was a whole bunch of people who came forward to get baptised. And he said, oh, it, 
it sort of, it made it seem okay. You know, he'd yelled at me this week in the staff meeting, but it seemed okay because we had all of these people baptised. It was worth it. It was so messed up. You, know, you imagine that, that all of this stuff must be good because God's blessing and so it's okay, I'll just, I'll get on with it. I'll, I'll turn a blind eye to the abuses. It's almost like that's the cost of success. But God hates this. This is spiritual abuse. And Jesus is outraged by it. Jesus laid down his life for us and woe betide anyone who would harm those that he cares for. Remember what he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So we might think we might think to ourselves, well, it's just too dangerous to give humans any kind of spiritual authority. And one of the creepiest things was after all of this stuff was happening, Driscoll talked about how he felt like he was stepping into a new phase of ministry where he was going to be a spiritual father. So, so maybe we just shouldn't even use those terms or think about it like that. But while there is risk in this, I still think that this is God's vision for ministry, that he calls people to shepherd the flock. So the problem is not with shepherding itself, but with the shepherd who does the wrong thing. So 1 Peter 5 says, Peter exhorts the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so God has this very high bar for those who lead the church. He's looking for the heart of the pastor to be someone who seeks to serve and not be served. That's the test that Jesus gave us, didn't Matthew 20, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, ultimately, a spiritual father is not about themselves. They're always constantly pointing to the heavenly father and directing people to him. As a pastor, this is an incredibly challenging message. As I said, I'm learning so much from 2 Corinthians and thinking through, do I have this kind of heart, the heart of Paul? He acknowledges his authorities for building up and not for destroying. He sees the precariousness of the power that he has and he seeks to serve with it. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That's what I need to be like. That's what we need to be like. That's what you need to demand of me. So the people of God were in Paul's heart, but he protected them because he knew ultimately they were in God's heart that they were precious to God. And because he had that attitude, that understanding, he sought to serve them, to protect them, not to just rule over them. That's the pastor's heart. Well, I love Paul's heart in this passage, but I also really love the heartfelt response of the church that we see as we read on. Paul asked them to open their hearts, and it seems like many of them actually had done that. 
because they were ready to receive the rebuke and the challenge that Paul gave. It's never easy to receive a rebuke from someone, but it says a lot if we're willing to be like that. None of us enjoy being shown our weaknesses. And sometimes when it happens to us, we kind of try and find a way to defend ourselves. We try to make excuses or we suggest that that person doesn't have the right to speak into my life like that. I don't think that's actually true. So the Bible makes it clear that we all have a right to speak into each other's lives. The Bible imagines a robust community where we're speaking to each other, caring for each other. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Paul says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, Colossians 3. He imagines that we're speaking into each other's lives. And so the way we respond to that is a really good sign of our spiritual maturity. Proverbs 12, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. (laughs) It's pretty frank. But it's true, isn't it? Like if you want to learn, then you need to be willing to listen. You need to open your hearts, make room in your hearts. And thankfully that's how many of the Corinthians had responded. Paul had challenged them. They'd been confronted. And then they have this beautiful response. So in verse 7, they long for Paul. They're grieved by their sin. They know that they've hurt Paul. They have this what he calls godly grief. And he says in verse 11, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. They were determined to fix things right, fix fix things up. They, They hadn't stood up for Paul properly in the past, but now they were going to do that. They had indignation towards the sin. They, they hadn't always taken it seriously, but this time they will. They have a righteous fear or alarm. They, they, they hate the thought of doing the wrong thing and they have a longing to be reconciled, a zeal to do whatever's necessary to make that happen. And what Paul's describing here, I think, is really what we call repentance. The word repentance is a key word in Christianity. Uh, Basically, it it means to do a 180. We're going one way, we're walking away from God, and then we turn back to him and follow him and do the right thing. Perhaps the best definition of this is in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The question comes, what is repentance unto life? And the answer is, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of their sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavour after new obedience. There's a number of things we could pull out here. The first thing to note is that it's a saving grace, that repentance is essential to salvation. Now, that doesn't mean that repentance is what saves us. We're not saved by what we do. We're saved by what Christ has done, but we won't receive that until we respond to it. And we respond by repenting. Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. He's saying, you're going this way, now turn back to me. Repent and then you'll receive the gift of grace. And repentance is part of forgiveness because repentance is the thing that makes us seek forgiveness. You won't want salvation, you won't want forgiveness until you have a true sense of your sin. 
And so when you have that sense that this is wrong, that I've done the wrong thing, then you seek forgiveness and you seek Jesus. You seek his grace. But, of course, repentance doesn't just stop there. As it says here, we, we say sorry, but then we endeavour after, we pursue new obedience. We want to be free not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin in our lives. Now, we may stumble sometimes, we struggle, but we're constantly moving forward. And that's because, ultimately, we're repulsed by the sin. Look at the, the language here. A sinner has a true sense of their sin. They turn from it to God with a grief and hatred of the sin. And that's very strong language, but it's very, very helpful. See, when you hate something, you don't want to do it. You don't like it. You don't have to ask your kids not to have Brussels sprouts because they won't want that. They hate that, right? It's the same with sin. If you truly hate a sin, if you're grieved by it, then you'll avoid it because you're repulsed by it. You just don't want to be around it. So it's actually worth asking ourselves if we feel this. See, maybe there's a sin in your life that you're battling. You keep falling into it. You feel bad about that, but it keeps happening. Maybe it keeps happening because you don't actually hate it. You're not actually truly grieved by it. You're not repulsed by the sin. We know, for instance, that we shouldn't run down people with our words, but we actually enjoy it. We like the feeling of power when we do it. We know perhaps that we shouldn't spend so much money, but we just really love the thrill of having something new and so on. I mean, it might seem strange. You, you get upset about the sin, but, but why can't you break free? Well, you don't have the kind of grief that is powerful to change it. See, Paul goes on to explain that there's, there's two types of grief. Whenever a sin is exposed, there's kind of grief that happens. But he makes a difference between godly grief and worldly grief. Verse 11, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So there are these two types of grief. What's the difference? Well, to kind of summarise, godly grief mourns the sin itself, but worldly grief tends to focus more on the consequences of the sin. See, worldly grief, you're thinking about all of the things that come alongside because of the sin. They might be consequences from God. Maybe you, you, you're grieved by the fact that you might face his judgment or it might be from others. You're sad that your parents ground you and say you can't play video games for a week or, or you, you're anxious because, because your lie means that you're going to have to confess something to your spouse. As Colin Cruz puts it, there's regrets over what's happened, but there's no accompanying change of mind and heart or any willingness to change behaviour. Uh, Gary Miller speaks about different types of repentance that are kind of false repentance. He gives three. He says the first is kind of crisis repentance. When you're, you know, you imagine a person who's in a plane and the plane's heading for a crash landing and they're like, God, I'll repent. If you just save my life, I'll, I'll follow you. And then as soon as they're rescued, they forget about it, right? They, they feel safe again. 
Or you might have ritual repentance where, where someone does religious actions to make themselves feel better. You might call it mafia repentance. I don't know if you see these movies and you see like a mafia dude on a Saturday who's shooting people and killing them. Then on Sunday he's there at mass and he's crossing himself and so on. It's this kind of ritual repentance. You try to make yourself feel better by doing some religious action. And Miller also talks about manipulative repentance where you put on a kind of performance of despair, making actually you've hurt someone else but you make the focus all on you even though you've hurt them. These are the kinds of repentances that we might have but they're not actually effective. They don't actually last very long. It might modify your behaviour but there's no deep change. Your accountability software means that it's too, too difficult, too embarrassing for you to look up porn, but that doesn't mean you don't desperately want to. The sin itself is still there. You're just afraid of the consequences. R. Kent Hughes makes the point that this kind of grief is not actually distinct from the sin, but it's actually bound up in it. It's an expression of the sin. Or as Scott Haifman puts it, worldly sorrow is the grief that comes about because one's actions result in missing out on something that the world has to offer. Worldly sorrow feels bad because it wants more of the world. So so you're sad because of the things that you're missing out on. And actually, Paul says here that that kind of grief produces death. That can actually make things worse. See, it can lead to a kind of self-entitlement and resentment, a resentment at God, at others. And why can't I do this? Why does there have to be consequences? Why do these other people have to care so much? You're sad because you're not having what you want. By contrast, godly grief mourns because you're missing out on God himself, because your sin affects your relationship with him and you miss him. Godly grief, says Paul, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And you can tell because when someone has a godly grief, they repent and they truly own the sin. They don't make excuses. They don't say, oh, I just couldn't help it. You don't understand how much pressure I was under. They don't put the blame on someone else. Like if you had been here, it wouldn't have happened or it's your fault actually that I did this. No, when godly grief comes, you own the sin because you feel the sinfulness of the sin. You feel the ugliness of it. I often tell people that you know you feel sorry when the word sorry feels too small. I mean, we use the word sorry when... When you bump into someone on a train, oh, sorry about that. But you also use the same word when you've deeply hurt someone, I'm I'm so sorry. Like in those moments, you wish you had a bigger word. You wish you had a bigger word because you feel the sinfulness of the sin. That's true repentance. Maybe the, and, and ultimately you feel that the sin is against God himself. Perhaps the best example of this is King David after his sin with Uriah and Bathsheba. Uh, You might know the story, 2 Samuel 11. David's hanging out on the roof of his palace. He sees a woman down below who's bathing. Her name is Bathsheba. She's married to someone else, but he lusts after her. So he goes and 
probably rapes her. That's what the suggestion is perhaps in the story. And then he grabs her to be his wife. But the problem is she's married to someone else, one of his warriors, Uriah, and then she falls pregnant. And so he's about to be exposed, exposed for the affair, exposed for everything. So he arranges it so Uriah gets killed in battle and then he can take Bathsheba for his wife. It's an incredible collection of sins. It's a, it's a Netflix of sins. There's hurt, there's lust, there's adultery, there's murder. And God is greatly displeased and sends the prophet Nathan to confront him. And David is convicted. I have sinned against the Lord, he says. Then Psalm 51, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see the true depths of his repentance. He feels the sinfulness. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. I've done what is evil. He accepts the consequences. You're justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. One of the other great signs of repentance is when someone accepts the consequences of their sins. And notice too, he says, against you, you only have I sinned. Now, if I was Uriah, I'd be kind of like, well, actually, you sinned against me. I'm dead here. But I don't think he's denying that he sinned against Uriah. He's saying that he feels ultimately that he's sinned against God himself. He feels that. He feels deeply that he has done the wrong thing by God. This is a true and deep repentance. But I want you to see what he does with it. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, this is the other sign of true repentance. It leads you to say sorry and to seek forgiveness. That's what David does here. See, remember back to our definition of what repentance is. It's an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. We, We see that we've done the wrong thing, but we also come back hoping for mercy and trusting that it's possible. We, we feel our sinfulness, so we know that we can't earn that mercy. We know that we need it from God and his forgiveness, and we trust that we can find that in Jesus, that Jesus has done what's needed for our forgiveness. And so we go back to God, hoping in his promises. 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you've heard those words and you've felt them, if you've wanted them to be true, then you have a godly grief that leads to true repentance. If you recognise that you are a sinner, if you confess that to God, if you long for him to change you, then that's true repentance. And that leads to life. It leads to full hearts. One of the strangest things in Christianity is the joy of conviction. It might sound strange, but sometimes God will convict you of your sin. You'll feel it quite profoundly. You'll feel humbled. 
And yet far from destroying you, this actually motivates you. Like you, you want to change. You feel the sin, but you have some sense of desire to change. I, I imagine it's like you're in the bottom of a well and it's dark and it's deep and you're stuck there in the bottom, but you find yourself looking up and you sense God inviting you to trust him so he can bring you out of the well. That's what conviction feels like. And that's the difference between conviction and condemnation. See, condemnation doesn't motivate, it just eliminates. The devil just presses you down. He'll make you see your sin, but he'll cut you off from any hope of forgiveness. He'll keep you away from Christ and his forgiveness. He'll make you think that you have to earn your way back to God, that you have to pay for it, and he'll make that feel impossible. He makes it close in on yourself. That leads to death. The true grief, guided by God, brings us to life. You feel your sin, but you also sense that there is forgiveness and hope and change. That leads to full hearts. And here in this passage, it leads to reconciliation. Paul was greatly grieved by the Corinthians and their sin, but then greatly encouraged by their repentance. You see his joy here in verse 4, I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our afflictions. I'm overflowing with joy. He sounds like a proud parent, just chuffed that his kids have come through and developed and matured. And he actually says, I have confidence. Verse 15, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Now, I find that crazy. I mean, I've read First and Second Corinthians. I don't know how he has confidence. Like, this is a messed up church, but he does have confidence because he has seen God working in them. He has seen that they have a godly grief that has led to repentance that will lead to change, and so he rejoices. The pastor's heart is full because the Corinthians have found room in their hearts for him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the wonderful example of Paul and his great ministry for his heart. We thank you for his courage to confront sin. Lord, we ask that you will help us to be a robust church, a robust community where we speak the truth in each other's lives, where we confront sin, not out of vanity, not out of judgmentalism, but out of love. We do it carefully. We do it with grief, but also with a desire to serve and love and care. And then, Lord, help us to receive that, to embrace challenge, to be thankful that someone would love us enough to challenge us. Lord, thank you that you opened your heart to us, that even though we have sinned against you, we are in your hearts. And you came to die for us and to live for us. We thank you that you came to give us new hearts. Give us hearts that respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.